You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you'd like to follow along with the reading, I'm going to be in Jude verses 3 through 19. So the bulk of Jude, if uh, you're using one of the church Bibles under the seat, that's going to be on page 1088. And you might be able to use that a little bit to fan yourself. If you're warm, we've opened some doors. If you can hear the translation going on outside, that's just going to help cool things off. It's that weird time of year when we need to get somebody out to service the AC, and all you bodies in here just are all little furnaces, and you heat this room up so fast. Uh, So hopefully you have some water, and and, uh, we will all just endure together. Let's Let's read God's Word together. Jude, verses... 3 through 19. It says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered for the saints once for all. For some people who were destined for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on that great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet, when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people, they blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do not understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Verse 12. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts, as they eat without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars from whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all ungodly concerning their ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way concerning all their harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you, in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. Let's pray.
Lord, this is a tough word. It's a, a stern and shocking warning. God, it's my prayer that you would help me to preach this well and write with the appropriate boldness that would also shock our senses and warn us. God, speak to us in terms we can understand. Lord, help us to see and hear. And Lord, I ask that you can keep us from the dangers of these things. Lord, and you could keep us in your love. So Lord, I just simply ask that you would do what you promised to do and we would be faithful to hold tightly to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So occasionally I get phone calls here at the church. Pastor Josiah fields some of these as well. Or we get emails. Maybe some of you have sent me some of these. I'm not specifically talking about you, if that's you. But we get emails here for people who might have just moved into the area. They're looking for a new church. That can be a difficult thing. Some of our folks, this is their last Sunday, and they're going to Texas, and now they've got to look for a new church. That can be a difficult thing. We're going to miss them. We hope they find a good church. But they've got to do this process where you're, you're looking, and you're calling, and you're emailing, and you're trying to figure it out. Maybe, maybe you've just moved to the area. Maybe some of these people, they haven't been in church in a long time, and they're just trying to, trying to find a place. And lately, last, I don't know, year or so, we've gotten a question more often now than we didn't used to get. It's come quite a bit. The question is this, are you a woke church? Are you woke? What an utterly unhelpful question. That's a wrong question. Woke is a loaded and a term. It's got this ambiguous meaning. Nobody really knows how to drill down and actually define it. And by the way, what answer are you going to get that's actually going to be helpful? Okay, it's like calling up and saying, do you preach a false gospel? What are you going to be told? What are you going to hear? Right, so this is not the right question. So don't ask these questions if you're, if you're looking for a church. Jude 4 says, these people have come in by stealth. Do you really think that people who've come in by stealth, that the Jews says are destined for the fires of hell, who've snuck into the church under false pretenses, who are living just under the surface like a reef to wreck ships, are going to identify themselves as wolves or as teachers, false teachers? They're not going to just, oh yeah, that's the case. In fact, do you think they even really realize it? Do you think they even really know? I don't think so. So still totally unaware, they've turned the grace of our God into sensuality. Clueless, they preach a false gospel that denies Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master, thinking they're doing good. In all honesty, with the, the, the greatest sincerity, thinking they're doing good, they look like Sodom and Gomorrah. They rely on their dreams, and in doing so, they defile their flesh, and they reject authority, and they slander God's glorious ones. That's verse 9. It says, people, these individuals are divisive. And it says, they're worldly. And it says, they don't have any evidence of having the Holy Spirit in them. Okay, they participate at the Lord's table, the Lord's supper with us, but they don't have any reverence for it. They don't have any fear of God in it. And then it says, for those who are pastors, which is a frightening thought, it should chill us to the bone. It says they are selfish, fruitless, blind guides. Now, blind guides comes from another text, but they are selfish and seeking after their own ambition and their own desires. So the question, are you woke? Not even remotely a helpful question. Not even the right question. Here's some helpful questions. 
What gospel do you know, live, and proclaim? That's a better question. Who do you believe Jesus is? That's a good question. Who is God? Yep. What does the Bible say about me and, and who I am? Good question. What is salvation? Why is it necessary? What must I do to be saved? Yes, these are good questions, and you should be asking these questions of any who you sit under their teaching, any pastor, any teacher, any leader. These are the questions. These will get you to meaningful answers that will help you. These are the right questions. Why? Why should we be asking these difficult questions of our Christian? Why can't we just be okay with like, hey, we're all good. Everybody's good. We just like each other. We, I, he's got a Bible. He must be right. Why do we ask these questions? Because dangerous reefs have crept into campus ministries, mission-sending organizations, church-planting networks, seminaries and Bible colleges, apologetic ministries, publishing companies, Christian radio and Christian TV, and Christian conferences, and Christian denominations, and all the other ministries that call themselves Christians. But the most dangerous place we might find them is in the local church even maybe here, right now, among us. Matthew 24, 11 says, Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And Jude is warning us of this exact problem. But in our fallen condition, in our, in our sinful condition, in the situation in which we sometimes find ourselves, we struggle to ask the right questions. Don't we? We just kind of spin off into the buzzwords. We don't really know what we're looking at or what we're looking for. We don't know what's true and what's false, and therefore we're at great risk. Our eternal destiny and our life with Jesus, even right now, has the potential of being in tremendous peril if we do not heed God's words, this warning from Jude. Now, I've spent the last two Sundays preaching the latter part of Jude, verses 20 through 23, which helps us. These verses are the, the, the safety verses. This is what helps us stay safe from false teaching and false prophets and the apostates, and, and it helps us to encourage our brothers and sisters and help one another. These are the, the life preserver verses as we go out into those dangerous waters. And having started there, having preached two weeks there, I think we are now, I hope, I pray, prepared to take a closer look at Jude's warning about apostates and false teachers in the church. Please remember, we're talking about in the church, not out there, not what you see out on the news, not the crazy world. He's talking about those who are among us, maybe even us. Is it I, Lord? I, I, I pray not. So let us take a look at this. The first thing we really need to ask ourselves is how do we recognize them? How do we, how do we, how do we know? Well, we need to examine what they say and we need to examine what they do, and we need to examine their fruit. I'm going to take a look at each of these in turn, and I want to let you know that I'm going to spend the most time examining what they say, because that's the clearest and sharpest and easy way to get to all the rest. But the other things are helpful. So, so if, I, if you see that I get to the first point and I spend all my time there, don't panic when I get to point two and run off to lunch. Those last two points will be substantially shorter. So we examine what they say, we examine what they do, or really we could say who they are, and we examine their fruit. 
What is it that they say? Now, a quick word of caution here. Okay, if you're in a Bible study with somebody, like maybe this morning at 9.30, and somebody else in the Bible study with you says something that's, that's wrong, all right, that doesn't mean that they are immediately a, a false teacher or a heretic or a false prophet, especially if they're just in the class with you. Let's show some grace with one another. We're all going to get some stuff wrong. We're all going to misunderstand some things. That's the reason why we're studying together. It's really, though, how we submit ourselves to the Word of God and how in our sanctified state we're being corrected and we're working through this. Even sometimes your Bible teacher, even myself included, might get something wrong. That doesn't immediately mean run screaming for the hills. It's not the... It's not the warning flag. It's just something to be aware of. We all do this. How we handle it is what's so important. Now, that being said, anyone who sets himself up as a teacher, who professes to know and is speaking with some sense of of teaching the Bible with authority should fully expect to be examined by what they say. The Bible says we should do this. The Bereans did it, and the, the teachers will have a higher expectation placed of them. So we need to examine what they say. You need to examine what I say. In the case of these false prophets, false teachers, it says they were turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. That means they don't know the biblical gospel and they're teaching a false gospel. It's just an easy way of saying they got it done wrong. Sensuality is not just a sexual thing. It's saying they do what's good for the desires of the flesh, for the immediate gratification right now, and they teach that's what you should do too. Okay, and then they deny, it says, they deny Jesus as Lord. Okay, that means that they are denying that he's in charge, that he has authority, that his word is authoritative, even the Bible. They're they're denying these things. These people are attempting to teach that Jesus is somebody who is not who he says he is. They're creating and standing up a different Jesus and a different word of God. Jesus reveals who he is in his word, and they're saying it's something other than that. Or sometimes, now here's where it gets real tricky. Here's where we sometimes can really flirt with some dangerous things. Most of us do. I even had a conversation with my wife in the car driving here about this. This is some difficult stuff. Sometimes. We overemphasize, or a teacher or an entire movement might overemphasize one part of the Bible that is true, but actually put it higher than the truth of the gospel. They take something that's important, that's in the Word of God, that's secondary, and they make it primary. And when they make it primary, they make it an idol and a false god. And now we have problems. The tricky part is they can use a lot of scripture to do it, can't they? That can get really, really dangerous for us. If it's not the gospel, if it's not the faith that was delivered to the saints, once for all, we need to be weary. If you would, just as a sense of another warning, let's turn over, um, let's read from Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I think this is so prevalent. Um, It's so helpful for us with all the things that bombard us in our community and in the world. Uh, It's on page 1031 if you're using the church Bible. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And by the way, every time we have a mission team come here to Utah, we always start with this and we walk through this with them. 
That's why you need to know your Bible. Paul says to the Galatians, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but that there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this. But even if we, he's talking about the apostles, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, and I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, meaning from the apostles in the word of God, a curse be on him. That's a stark warning. Do you know the true gospel? Do you know how to measure it up against what you hear? Can you spot the fakes? I mean, I mean first, you really need to learn and know your Bible. You need, to, you need to know, and if you're reading your Bible regularly, and something comes along that doesn't line up, it just kind of jumps out at you, and it's easy to see. But if you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. You need to be in your Bible. That way, every wind of doctrine that comes along and tickles your ear doesn't pull you off onto the wide path that leads to destruction. I remember when I first started reading the Bible, I remember the first time I read Job, and then this is probably true of the second, third, and fourth, and tenth time I read Job. Uh, I, I would find myself agreeing, if you've ever read Job, Job's really suffering, and his three friends come to help him, and they tell him all this stuff that's not good. I found myself agreeing with all of his friends, like, <laughs> these guys seem to be getting it right. Ilfaz and Bildad and Zophar, I'm like, I don't get what's wrong. I hear this stuff all the time in Christian circles. I hear my Christian friends saying all this stuff. What's the problem? But Job 42.7 says this. God shows up and he says to, to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Okay, oops. Don't agree with those guys. Don't, it, spoiler, you don't want to be on their side. They've been saying something wrong. What happens is after getting to know the gospel more and more and reading more and more, pretty soon when you hear them say something, you go, whoa, wait a minute, that's the prosperity guy. What the, oh, there's a therapist. No, time out. Hold on a sec. You don't know. That sounds right. That sounds like a secondary issue. You made a primary issue. When you know your Bible, suddenly that stuff just jumps off the page and you're like, oh, I see it now. And the same is true of popular Christian books I used to read. Man, I go back. Sometimes you don't ever want to look back to where you were. When you're, I look back and go, man, I loved this book. This was such a good, this was so formative in my early Christian years. And then I look at them and go, what? That, uh, how did I like this so much? It's wrong. It's dangerous. I've got some books I've taken off my shelf that just are flat in heresy. And the sad part is some of those authors aren't even Christians anymore. They've walked away from the faith completely. And I go, how did I, how did I not get it? Oh, well, I didn't know God's word very well. They tricked me. I just let them trick me. I was just a gullible nincompoop because I wasn't going to the chief source from God and I was believing everybody else, every wind of doctrine that would tickle my ear. Now, I don't have time to discuss all the false gospels. I mean, that would take a long time. But I briefly want to hit on the four big ones that I think we might very easily encounter this week. I think I've encountered most of these in one form or another this week in the various comings and goings of my life. Four big ones. Here's the first. 
It's common, and none of these are gospels, but that's what we call them. Gospel is good news. None of these are, these are all bad news. But the prosperity gospel, the prosperity false gospel, this is the false claim that if God really loves us, I mean, if, he, if we're really faithful and if he just really loves us, he's going to give us all the health and all the wealth we need in this temporal life right now. He's going to give us great prosperity because God wants to prosper us. And they can pull some verses out of context and we can get there. This puts our wants for this life now above God's wants for eternity. It claims that earthly treasure is more important than heavenly treasure. And heavenly treasure is Christ. You don't go to heaven to escape this world. You go to heaven to be with Christ. You get to be with and treasure and enjoy Christ. He is the prize. Without him, heaven would be really terrible. But they put earthly treasure above heavenly treasure. They claim that Christ's chief purpose, his main reason for coming, was to make us wealthy. Or at least make us debt-free or something. Right? He wants that of us. Right? That's the main reason Jesus came to this earth. That's their claim. But the Bible says, Christ came to seek and save the lost, to die in our place while we were still sinners, so that we could be reconciled with God and be saved, receiving his unmerited, unearned grace that we do not deserve, so we could worship and enjoy him forever and bring him glory. Christian, you may never be rich, especially if you go into the ministry. And you might not have health. We have people in this room who have been sick and struggling with various illness and diseases for years and years. Some of you might be unhealthy for your entire lives. And you might not ever be debt-free. But we can enjoy the riches of Christ even now and forever in eternity when we give up building our own kingdom of garbage and live for God's kingdom with Christ as your king. Okay, the second false gospel. This is called the, the therapeutic gospel or the soft prosperity gospel. And it's very similar to the first. It just has a little variation here. And, and this is tricky because it sounds good. This variation, this therapeutic gospel, says that the purpose of Jesus, the reason we have Jesus, is to lift all our burdens in this life so that we have less stress, so that we have less loneliness, so that he takes away our anxieties and our depression, and we have all this wonderful hope in this life right now that he will make all of this now really good for us. And the claim is it's all rest, and we go, well, that sounds good, because Jesus gives us rest. But not this. This isn't the rest we're talking about. He's not giving us rest from the earthly ramifications of sin and problems in this world. And having hope in Jesus Christ for our salvation gives us a better sense of rest and our sanctification may lift us up or lighten these earthly struggles. It is a byproduct of salvation and it is wonderful, but it is not the guarantee, nor is it the chief reason that Jesus Christ came. This false gospel hardly ever talks about sin, never mentions we are sinners, never mentions the reason for all this brokenness is sin. 
He never says that the reason this burden that we have, that Jesus gives us rest from, is because we sinned against the holy God. It just says Jesus came to fix all the challenges of this earthly life for the here and now. It's real, you know, a short period of time, but he's going to make you have the best life you can have today. The biblical gospel is the answer for sin, but it does not guarantee that you won't have trouble in this life. It does not guarantee that immediately you won't have depression or immediately you won't have anxiety or immediately you won't have these problems. You will have stress. I know some people being, I don't personally know them, I know of some people who are being seriously persecuted and I'm pretty sure they have some stress. We're going to have trouble in this life. However, if we do have trouble and then we do have Jesus, Jesus far surpasses anything that we might have in this lifetime. All right, so then we have the hope of God, we have the hope of Jesus Christ and eternity with him and we are freed from the idea of ever spending any time In that final judgment where the fires never go out and the worm never dies, we get Christ forever. And we get to spend time where Jesus will comfort us forever, where God will wipe away every tear and collect them in a bottle, where there will no longer be these problems. And that goes on forever, not just in the little blip that we call this life. And we have Jesus, the heavy burdens of life then become what the Bible calls momentary and light compared to the glory and majesty that we will enjoy in Jesus Christ forever. The third, the third of these prevalent false gospels in our community within even the Christian church and maybe even in here is the social gospel. This is the false gospel that says that Jesus chiefly came to give us community and belonging and to fix all the ills in the world and hopefully to fix all the political problems too. Every election year, this gospel really shines, comes out all over the place. This this social gospel, again, it's very temporary. It's very, very short-sighted. It lacks in a kingdom perspective of eternity. And it doesn't answer some pretty easy and, but also pretty complex questions. It doesn't answer why Jesus didn't heal every single person at the pool of Bethesda when he easily could have. It doesn't answer why he didn't sell Mary's really expensive perfume made of pure nard so he could use that money to feed the poor instead of anointing him for his death and his burial and his resurrection. The social gospel doesn't actually fix any problems. Jesus' perfect death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father makes it possible for the extender to exchange our sin and our condemnation for Jesus' righteousness so that we can stand justified before God and be adopted into a new community, his family, forever. And then his people do indeed gather together and they do indeed have new community And they do indeed have new hearts. And they do indeed have new desires. And everything in them changes. But it's only by these changed people that the world in some ways, in our community in some ways, may or might not get better. That's God's prerogative what happens. 
And the reason we do these things, give a cup of cold water to those in need, to feed the poor, to visit those in prison, to do these things, to have this community together, is because we get to enjoy Christ incarnate in us together. And we get to serve him with joy. And maybe that will improve things. Christians over time have seen the world improve in great ways. Maybe that will change some of the problems, but that is not the chief reason Jesus came. If it was the chief reason Jesus came, it'd be done. And everything would be great. But we're just passing through this life, and everything will be great. And along the journey, let's pray and hope that God will redeem hearts, redeem lives, and by those people faithfully living for Jesus, He'll redeem communities. That's the proper order. Fixing the community is not going to fix sinful hearts, but fixing sinful hearts might fix the community, God willing. The last one. Certainly not the last false gospel, but the last one we're going to deal with today. The new, you might call it, the new gospel, or the fuller gospel, or the relevant gospel, this false gospel says that there's, there's new information that we have now. Or there's more information that maybe just came along later and, and, and Jude, he didn't have it. Jesus didn't have it. Right? But, or maybe it was hidden and it's been revealed now by some new prophecy or by some angel who showed up or by something. And we can, we can have more information and it's fuller than what they had before. Or the other way this thing rears its ugly head is it says we get to shape the gospel for our needs today. We get to conform it to it. It's what's relevant. We don't make the gospel relevant. The gospel is relevant and always has been because it speaks to our problems and the solutions to those problems, sin, salvation, Christ, our identity, all of it. It does not need to be changed to conform to this world. This world needs to be changed to conform to it. So we don't get to change it. There's not secret information. They didn't have something that was incomplete when Jude wrote this letter. They didn't. They had everything that we have. Let me show you Jude chapter 3. I found it nece- excuse me, Jude verse 3. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith, this thing we call our faith, that was, past tense, was, not will be or is continually, it was delivered to the saints by way of the apostles, written down into God's word. It was delivered to the saints once for all. If you write in your Bible, underline that. Once for all. Not once for right now and there's more coming. Not it's going to be completed later. Not you get to work it for what you need. Once for all. What was delivered then is the same we have now. The message they're preaching is the same message. Uh, There's no more coming. We have warnings about this false gospel. The apostles delivered what they were called to deliver upon. And if I had what they had, I would be an apostle, but I'm not. We have the word of God. Once for all. No new dreams. No new prophecies for the church to write down as canon. None of that. Once for all. In fact, when I stand up here to preach, I'm not preaching a message to you. I don't have a message for you. I don't. You don't need to hear anything I have. I have God's message. My job is to preach his message to us, the same that Jude had, 
The same that Paul delivered. The same the saints that came before us had. The same I pray that the saints who come after us will have, should God tarry. I simply have the responsibility of explaining this to you the best I can so you can hear the message of God. And you have it too, that you can read and work through it. No preacher should ever have a message for you. Unless it's God's message and he's serving as God's ambassador. We don't get to change this. We don't have anything new. That gospel is a real tricky one because we all sort of have this sinful desire to update what we think God got wrong, don't we? We don't get to do that. The gospel message is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Delivered by the apostles once for all. Do you know the biblical gospel? I mean, do you you know it? Do you know Jesus? Jesus as he's described in this word, not the one you've created or you've heard from somebody who had a dream or something. Do you know his word? If you don't, I'd love to talk with you. If you want to know who this Jesus is, come talk to me after the service. Talk to Pastor Josiah. Talk to somebody sitting next to you. You need to know who this Jesus is. All right. I took the bulk of my time on that one, but we still have a little time, so I've got two more short points. Our goal is to understand what the false teachers look like, so we examine what they teach. We make sure it lines up with the Bible. Next, we examine what they do or who they are. Okay, another clue is to sort of see who they are and see what their character looks like. Jude says they, they snuck in, which suggests they keep apart for themselves. They keep a little hidden thing that they're not known. They're not letting people know them. They have skeletons in their closet, which is just a way of saying there's death in the closet. They have a distorted gospel, and then they've distorted it to be something they want for themselves so they can fulfill immediate gratification. They have fleshly desires, and they are selfish, and they fulfill all those desires as soon as they can. They are worldly. They are selfish and self-serving. They are rebellious to Jesus, and they do not want to submit to him. They rely on their own dreams to get a new way rather than relying on God's word. They act irrational as if they have like an animal instinct instead of obeying and following God. They blaspheme anything they don't understand rather than trying to learn and understand it. They're confused, blaspheme it. They slander the glorious ones, meaning either the saints, us and and all those have come, or the angels, or even the triune God, or all of the three. They slander the glorious ones. They're arrogant and they flatter people for their own advantage. They are discontented grumblers. They are divisive, and they shipwreck people in the church. And if left unchecked, they'll shipwreck the entire local church. And finally, it says they are ungodly. And I can stand confidently on that, because if you look yourself, it says it six times. They are ungodly. Now, here's some homework for later. It will not take you long. I just want to challenge you to examine the traits as you read through this that I've just mentioned, that Jude mentions here. Examine those traits and ask yourself, do any of them remind you of Jesus? Ugh. That might be a bit of a problem, huh? If we're supposed to be under-shepherds of Jesus, serving Jesus. If they don't look like Jesus, you might have some concern. And I don't mean long hair and beard. I mean, their character is at least... Certainly not perfect, but maybe being sanctified. They remind you in some way of things that that we should do and be as Christians. Here's a little more homework. Compare these traits against what Paul says about elders and deacons and what those elders and deacons should look like in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 12. 
Just read what a leader should look like and compare what Jude just described. Okay, finally. Finally, the last thing. So first we examine what they teach and say. Second, we examine what they do, how they act, what their character looks like. And finally, we examine their fruit. Okay, Matthew 7, um, there you'll find Jesus saying that we will know false prophets when they come in sheep's clothing. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They've come in. We will know them, he says, by their fruit. Now, we can't know their heart. God knows the heart, and he hasn't given us that ability. But we can't examine their fruit. And part of that is what they teach. That's a huge part of what that fruit looks like. And another part of that is their character and what they do. That's another part of the fruit, but there's a third part of the fruit. There's a third part that Jude really doesn't get to, but I think is important. We need to look at the people they're discipling. What do their disciples look like? How do their disciples act? How do their disciples think? What is the ramifications of what these people are teaching others? How does that look? We need to examine their fruit, and in this case, their disciples, or fanboys or groupies. False prophets usually have fanboys and groupies, not disciples. We need to examine their disciples. And what are their disciples teaching? What is being transmitted? It's, it's amazing when you meet a godly person, or you learn for a while from a really godly person, and you see how that person grew, and that person is godly, and they grew from somebody else who discipled them who was godly, and you see this sort of just transpiring, a godly person holding on to the gospel to the next person to the next person, because they're shaped by the once-for-all gospel, the same gospel. And I hope, and I expect that those we disciple will have that same sort of legacy we'll see that continuing on at the same time it's telling and it's alarming when you meet somebody who is enamored with his or her favorite guru everything his or her favorite guru says is right and and perfect and that person might as well be jesus rather than this person and a lot of times you meet these people and they are more excited about the person than anything else what does that tell you about what the person's teaching them what does that tell you We don't describe these kind of people as godly, do we? Maybe excited, maybe excited by their favorite influencer. It's really bad. And I see this from time to time, and it's terrible. It's way worse when you meet this fanboy or this groupie, and they're just excitable jerks that nobody wants to be around. And that happens often with false teachers. The fruit speaks. And we need to examine the fruit. Over the past 25 years, I've encountered people like Jude is warning us about in churches that I have been a part of. It's been a few members here and there sometimes. Sometimes there are people out on the fringes that seem to have no impact or influence or just everybody's like, whatever. But sometimes they're influential to the church. Sometimes they're in positions that can influence people. Sometimes they're actually in positions where the church has given them some sense of, of uh, responsibility in the church. They're leaders in some way, and I've watched them shipwreck people's faith and just wreck and destroy people. One of them was a pastor, which was painfully difficult. And it was hard on everybody, and it hurt the witness of the gospel, and it hurt the church for years. 
Sometimes I see these people, and it hasn't been in the distant past for me. Not when I was on staff at another church. Not when I was a new believer. I've seen some of these people in Redeeming Life Church. They come. They go. We deal with it. I think today's a good day. I don't think we have this going on today, but there will be more. The Bible makes that clear. They will come. Jude warns us. They will come. And maybe I just don't see it, and maybe there's somebody in here right now. So it would be easy to think we should set up a missile defense system, right? Let's do it. It'd be easy to think we need a neighborhood watch, church watch, some kind of watch. Root them out. Witch hunt. We, we need to keep a vigilant eye, that's true. We need, maybe we need to check everyone at the door. What do we check for? I don't, that's not what Jude tells us we're supposed to do. You realize that? It'd be so easy. Let's just, let's just go find them. Somebody, somebody take the internet. Your job is to check all of the internet for them. Somebody else take all the Bible studies. Somebody else watch the cameras. That's not what Jude says the church is to do. Not at all. So then how do we keep safe? How do we do this? How does Redeeming Life Church, you and me and all of us together as a church, stay healthy? I'd like to read from God's word how we do that. So if you would look at verses 20 through 25, I'm going to read the last part of this chapter. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. That's God's plan for how we keep safe. That's his way of dealing with the problem. I suggest we take this seriously, and I suggest we get after it. So let's put this practice in our lives today. Let us begin this now before the next wolf sneaks in here and makes a shipwreck of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for the warning. I thank you for the, the season of health we're in now, and I would beg, Lord, please keep us there. Keep us safe from these wolves in sheep's clothing. And Lord, help us to know your word well, that we'd have the best defense against the lies the world throws at us and the best defense against the lies those in the church who've snuck in throw at us. Lord, we want to be rooted and grounded in your word. We want to rest in your true gospel. Lord, some of us are wrestling with lies and wrestling with these things. Lord, give us the power and the strength to defeat our enemies in this. Lord, I, I thank you for the warnings in your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who guides and directs and leads us. I thank you for all those who are serving to disciple others well. I thank you for a church, Lord, that I, I believe right now, Lord, is healthy and, and, and trying to be healthy. We, help us be more healthy. Help us be rooted and grounded. Help us build on the rock of Jesus Christ as the foundation. And Lord, for any who might be still to this day suffering 
because their faith was shipwrecked. Bring them back. If they're prodigal, bring them back. Bring healing, spiritual and emotional healing from the damage the wolves have done and protect us in the future that we won't see that kind of damage again. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.